was Bond. James Bond. Japanese proverbs say, bird never make nest in bear tree. Just a slight stiffness coming on. Your cellos are Stradivarius. I'm just up here at Oxford, brushing up on a little Danish. You know what I can do with my little finger. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Roger Moore's Cubbyhole episode. Number 10. This is the podcast in which we have an insatiable appetite to illuminate the impact and influence of the world's most ingenious, inspirational spy, James Bond 007. You're very welcome inside the cubbyhole. If you're a new time or indeed a returning listener, do consider liking and following us on our social media accounts, Roger Moore's Cubbyhole over on Facebook and Instagram, More Cubby on Twitter. We really do appreciate your support and hope to bring you as much Bond content as possible. Remember, we also have the Q branch segment, aka questions branch, at the end of the show uh, in which we answer your questions. So get those to us by posting a comment on the aforementioned social media channels or by sending us a direct email, Roger Moore's Cubbyhole, all one word, no apostrophe, at gmail.com. Uh, a quick reminder that we're across most of the podcasting websites too. So if you're not already listening to us on your preferred platform, uh, you can probably switch to that now. Uh, we're available on TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, among many, many others. Now, in our previous episode, we praised one of the best, if not the best, Bond villain, Christopher Lee's wonderful Pierre Manga in Bond number seven, The Man with the Golden Gun. And while unquestionably entertaining, the film was also rather confused in some places, perhaps best encapsulated by the famous barrel roll and the infamous slide whistle that accompanied it. Definite room for improvement in the Roger Moore era of Bond. So did we get that improvement? Well, this week we'll be investigating the next in the series, Bond number 10, The Spy Who Loved Me. So as ever, it's a cross-country collaborative mission with our usual hosting team. Firstly, nobody does car monologues better. It makes me feel sad or maybe happy for the rest. It's Phil. How are you, Phil? Thank you very much, Martin. I'm very well, thank you. Just wanted to say a really quick few shout-outs this week. We've had a lot of interaction on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram as well. So just a quick shout-out to Ian Long in Manchester, who's one of our um, long-time followers on the podcast. A couple of really quick birthday shout-outs as well to Hilary Lindley and to Debbie Rogers, who at the time of recording will be celebrating their birthdays. And a really, really quick mention to um, to our Twitter and Instagram followers who have been getting involved with us recently. So, at Time to Bond, James Pickup, Talking Bond, Fioretta Volpe, at More007, please, at Mind Bother, at CL Shaver, even Konar. And on Instagram, Jeff Phillips and Lorenzo Granger, thank you so much for your kind comments as well. Just a really quick side note as well. We did get a like on Instagram from um, Britt Eklund recently, so we were quite honoured by that. So, uh, Britt, if you are listening to the show this week, thank you very much for the like. But now, looking forward to getting my uh, teeth into the spy you love me this week, Martin. I thought you were going to say I'm looking forward to getting my teeth into Britt Eklund this week, Phil. Yeah, it was a, it was a nice pun, but it didn't follow on from Britt, did it? <laughs> I should, I should have mentioned Jaws beforehand. I was trying to be too clever for my own good. 
Okay, and secondly, it's the man who was considering adding an extension to his house, but decided against it when only Egyptian builders were available. It's Adam. How are you, Adam? Thank you very much, Martin. Yes, Egyptian builders and a seven-foot-tall man with very strange uh, dental work, so I decided against it in the end. Thank you very much. I'm very happy to be here, particularly now that we're over the Guy Hamilton, Tom Mankiewicz axis of evil, or should it be Elvis, I should say, uh, that is the past three Bond films, uh, and that we're finally at uh, one of the greatest films ever made, The Spy Who Loved Me. Very good. So, as usual, we'll start the episode with our double-A team of Adam and, of course, Alan, who I believe is very familiar with this film. So, over to you guys. He is indeed, and uh, we'll come on to that in due course. So, thank you very much, The Spy Who Loved Me. This is Bond film number 10, based for the first and only time on the 10th James Bond book, quite coincidentally. It's directed by Lewis Gilbert, who returns to the series after previously directing You Only Live Twice. And, of course, Roger Moore is back for his third outing as James Bond in a film that he personally considered his best uh, of his seven Bond films. Albert R. Broccoli produces Solo for the first time. As we talked about last week, Harry Saltzman has now left the series. So, The Spy Who Loved Me is released in July 1977, so still 11 years before Pierce Brosnan's breakout film performance in the action classic Taffin. Then maybe you shouldn't be living here! The Spy Who Loved Me cost $13.5 million to make, so it's quite a sizable increase on the budget of uh, certainly the previous three or four Bond films. And it goes on to gross $185.4 million, so very much commercially and at the time critically seen as a big return to form for the franchise. Now, as I'm sure most of you will be aware, and if you aren't aware, it must have been very weird as doing it these past weeks, that uh, our whole Alan Partridge synopsis thing comes from a moment in I'm Alan Partridge, where he describes the opening sequence and the title song to The Spy Who Loved Me in great graphic detail. So this week, we're actually going to pick up post-title song. If you want to hear his great monologue to refresh yourself of the story, you can find it very easily on YouTube. But we're going to pick it up after a British and nuclear submarine have been captured, and after Bond has done that ski jump and that parachute. Roger Moore and Agent Triple X, a sexy Russian version of Bond, are sent to recover a microfilm in Egypt, while Stromberg, like Blofeld but fishier, feeds a lady to a shark, blows up two Poindexters in a chopper, and sends Stone Cold Steve Austin and Jaws across between Dracula and Frankenstein's monster after the microfilm too. Bond holes up in a desert tent full of totty. When one is in Egypt, one should delve deeply into its treasures. Then chucks Stone Cold Steve Austin off a roof. At a naff light show at the pyramids, Jaws very cleanly bites a man to death, and at a dance bar he does it again. But Bond and Triple X finally meet and, after ordering each other's favourite tipples, follow Jaws to a building site. There, they recover the microfilm, Jaws drops a rock on his foot, Bond has a dig at women drivers, and Triple X has the last laugh by knocking Bond out with a poison powder puff ciggy. Shaken, but not stirred. The bosses tell Bond and Anya to work together to beat the fishy one. En route, Bond and Anya finally have some sexy time after he electro-whitens Jaws' teeth on a train. In Sardinia, Bond wings it at marine biology at the Laboratoire Stromberg, and in the Aqualotus, he and Anya send a biker off a cliff. All those feathers and he still can't fly. Send Jaws' car into an Italian peasant's lunch, rocket a beautiful lady's chopper, make mincemeat of Stromberg's underwater Thunderball toys, then chuck a fish out the car window and confuse a drunken Brit on the beach. 
but at the hotel, Anya discovers that Bond killed her boyfriend in the opening sequence. When the mission is over, I will kill you. They freshen up on Scott Tracy's submarine. What's the matter? Never seen a major taking a shower before? But they're captured by Stromberg's submarine swallower, and he's sending two nukes out to wipe out humanity. Observe, Mr. Bond, the instruments of Armageddon. Luckily, Bond rescues three whole submarine crews who blow everything up and reprogram the nuclear subs to destroy each other, ironically at great cost of the marine life Stromberg was trying to save. Back at Laboratoire Stromberg, Bond shoots the fishy one in the knob, Jaws fights an actual shark and wins, Anya gets rescued and it all blows up. Anya decides she'd sooner have some champers and another go on Bond's magic penis rather than kill him, but the bosses catch them at it. Bond, what do you think you're doing? Keeping the British end up, sir. The end of the greatest film ever made. Fantastic endorsement and synopsis there from Mr. Alan Partridge. And thanks, Adam, your summary of the film as well. So The Spy Who Loved Me, uh, it's lucky that we're in the era of DVD, Blu-ray and uh, streaming. We didn't have a VHS that could be copied over with America's Strongest Man. So I hope uh, you guys watch the film without any problems or technical difficulty. So this film is, I'd, I'd probably go along with Alan, I'd say it's certainly, if not the best Bond film, it's certainly the strongest Roger Moore film. Um, I know that we don't usually go in a linear fashion, but I thought perhaps we could start with the pre-title sequence because it is, it's an amazing scene, isn't it, Phil? Yeah, I just want to say, first of all, Martin, I love this film. I think it is one of the very best Bond films of the entire lot, certainly Roger Moore's best. And it kind of, that opening scene, I think it builds a lot of tension. You know, you, you don't think that Bond is going to get away with it. Obviously, the way it's all set put together, the fact that he's, He's doing this sort of elaborate chase where he's having to, you know, kill sort of three or four rival agents that are sort of chasing him. He basically then has to, oh, his only escape is to go off the edge of the cliff and you're kind of thinking, well, this is, where is this actually going to lead us to? Because there's no real way that he can get out of it. Obviously, that is mixed with a few moments of ridiculousness. The fact he's wearing a, a bright yellow banana coloured ski outfit, which would make him stand out worse than a sore thumb. Some of the more elaborate ski jumps as well, the fact that he ends up leaping backwards to shoot somebody with his rocket gun as well is quite hilarious. But no, I think the way it's all put together is a brilliant piece of cinematography, and I think Lewis Gilbert needs a lot of credit for the way that that, that whole sequence was shot and the way that the whole piece is put together. Yeah, beyond that, you can look at that whole opening sequence, really, and it establishes this from the off as being, I think, as we've said, the peak Roger Moore Bond film. And that's because it goes back to that classic rule of three we've talked about, which is that balance of action and humour and spectacle and getting all three absolutely right. There's plenty of humour going on. I mean, certainly Roger Moore, I think, gets a couple of very early puns in from let me enlarge in your vocabulary to, uh, you know, something's come up when uh, his ticker tape watcher tells him he has to leave. So the humour's there, and it's also there in very tiny touches, like Anya's uh, music box plays the theme from Dr. Zhivago, David Lean's great Russian epic. And of course, on the submarine at the very start, it's a blink and you'll miss it, a uh, return to the Playboy centerfolds we last saw in On Her Majesty's Secret Service. Which leads in, as you quite rightly said, Phil, to the ski chase itself. This calls back to the great ski chase in Honor Majesty's, and Willy Bogner is again choreographing it. But it's in a very different style. In Honor Majesty's Secret Service, 
it was very fast. It was cut together in a very quick way and it was quite muscular in terms of the individual shots. This isn't that, this is much more epic. We get huge shots of the mountains actually dwarfing the ski chase. We allow the shots to dwell a little longer and for the stunt work to be celebrated a little more. And of course, I believe at the, uh, the London premiere of The Spy Who Loved Me, when the stunt took place and the Union Jack parachute came out, uh, apparently the entire 2,000 strong audience just stood up and cheered. And of course, it's then followed by a song entitled Nobody Does It Better. And you do just get the sense that the balance is absolutely perfect in this film. And this is suddenly a big celebration that Bond is back. Yeah, and I believe quite a dangerous stunt as well. I think uh, I read somewhere that the the ski that comes off caught the edge of the parachute just before it was uh, it was launched. Uh, so that could have easily been a, a fatal jump obviously not for roger moore but for the uh, the stuntmen doing it i think that just uh, adds to the epicness i feel of, uh, of what happened there yeah i also wanted to mention the fact that it's all just done with kind of one take as well it's not really kind of cut together in multiple shots there are sort of there are still sort of silly elements so i mean the sort of ridiculous disco music that you get as he's flying down the the mountainside and then it just all completely goes silent obviously as soon as it it launches off the edge of the uh, the cliff face I actually quite like his disco uh, action music in that sequence. I think it's really nicely of the time. And yet it, and it does sound a little bit daft. But also I do think it heightens the tension quite nicely in that scene, particularly as we get those sort of three-part crescendo of Judas as he's about to do the jump. Well, yeah, and talking of the mixture of uh, comedy and seriousness, we should perhaps talk about Roger Moore's performance in this film. I think uh, a great balance he managed to strike. We've mentioned in previous episodes that uh, the balance was not quite there. It was still good in places, uh, but room for improvement. Whereas this film, I think he really comes into his own Roger Moore as James Bond. He works brilliantly with the uh, the dialogue that he gets, the comedy bits, and also the uh, surprisingly serious scenes that he gets with Barbara Back's character as well, particularly when he goes back into the history of Bond and we, uh, we get some callbacks from previous films. Yeah, I'd agree, Martin. I think that, um, you know, Roger Moore by this point is very comfortable in the role. And let's not forget, this is also the first of the films where we see him actually in the opening sequence as well. Um, so, you know, in the previous films, he hasn't really featured. I think the audience by this point are, are quite familiar with Roger Moore in the role. And also he brings that sort of warmth and the ability to to carry off the sort of the, the harder scenes as well, the sort of the action sequences and the, the scenes where he needs to be tougher. I think a lot of the credit for this more consistent tone must come from Albert R. Broccoli now producing the film solo. There's no tension in the actual conception between of the film between those two producers. And crucially, there's a new writer, there's Christopher Wood, who at the time had just come off um, scripting the five instalments in the Robin Asquith Confessions series of 70s sex comedies. Lewis Gilbert and Christopher Wood specifically talked about the fact that they felt that Roger Moore's Bond was not being catered for in the writing on the previous film. And so there's a very deliberate um, step towards actually writing the character for Roger Moore in this film, rather than Roger Moore having to kind of place his interpretation on a character that's being written in the same way it was when someone with a completely different performance style was in the role. But you're right as well about he also, they balance that with some great dramatic scenes in the film. The one I really want to highlight is um, the scene just after the Lotus Chase actually, when they're in Sardinia in their hotel room and Anya makes the discovery, which is handled beautifully and subtly, 
because Roger Moore's Bond just happens to say the area in Austria where he bought his cigarette lighter from, which of course triggers in her the knowledge that, oh, hang on, this might be the British spy who executed my lover. And it's a great scene when she discovers that and Bond is forced to actually own up to it. And he doesn't sugarcoat the blow. He just tells her the tough truth of espionage and the world that they're in. I quite like the fact that we get some self-reflection from Bond in that scene as well. We've never heard his opinions or his views on his actual work, his job. Of course, we get his interplay with other characters, his boss M and Money Pemmy. Uh, but I think it's really good that we've got that dynamic with another spy from a previously hostile nation, but they're forced to work together in this mission. It actually, I guess, comes full circle from what you, Martin, were talking about last week in that great dinner table scene with Scaramanga, in which Scaramanga is really questioning the psychology of Bond and saying, you aren't any different from me. We're both just killers. You can come up with any excuse for it that you like, but you're the same as I am. Uh, and of course, in that scenario, Bond has to be very guarded and he has to bat it off. But there's almost a sense that it has lingered with him, that there is some residual thought in Bond of questioning who he is, which they go much further with when Daniel Craig ultimately comes into the role. And it also leads us into considering Bond as a moral figure. When um, the powers that be give the order to the submarine captain to blow up Atlantis, uh, Bond is infuriated and he says, no, no, give me an hour. I'm going to go over there. We've got someone on there. I'm going to get her. And he goes to say that even though she's promised to kill him once the mission is over. And so it recasts Bond as a kind of moral crusader, which is very close to how Ian Fleming had originally conceived the role as well. Yeah, I'd agree, Adam. And going back to Marty's point earlier about the fact there's a few little callbacks to previous films, there's, there's kind of a great moment in one of the bars where Anya and Bond are, are getting a drink. And obviously Anya mentions that Bond was once married. So, and you could kind of tell, obviously, Roger Moore plays it with that sense of regret and that sense of loss so that... They haven't sort of brushed over that. They're still kind of calling back to the old points of Honor Majesties and kind of the previous films. Yeah, much more impactful than what we had in Diamonds Are Forever immediately after Tracy's death with Money Penny and that, <laughs> that awful ring joke, the wedding ring joke. Oh, yeah, I'd forgotten that one. Yeah, how inappropriate and tactless of you, Money Penny. The Egyptian bar scene is also a great moment for Anya's character as well, because, of course, it establishes her as a fellow agent who can outsmart Bond and who can gain the upper hand on him. He thinks that he's got the upper hand because he knows her favourite drink. She not only knows the same information on him, but knows this incredibly personal information. And it really sours the encounter, which at, up until that point, Roger Moore was playing as a kind of banter-heavy, you know, moment of flirtation. But he completely loses his appetite for it after that moment. But I also think that in in the early sequences as well, where obviously uh, where Bond and Anne are kind of first introduced themselves, there's kind of a great sense of almost childish kind of competitiveness between them, particularly in the scene where they go to the um, the MI6 KGB joint operations room, where obviously Q's got his workshop, and obviously Bond is kind of thinks he's got the upper hand and he's kind of explaining the information, and then Anya kind of undercuts him, and then Bond feels he then has to talk to the auntie say well no actually this is correct so there's kind of that great interplay between the characters in that in that sequence yeah that is a great scene and the fact that they brought in the kgb as an ally for the very first time in this film it does set up a really fascinating new tension both in the dramatic storyline but also it mines the comic potential of that the fact that m in particular with in bernard lee's performance is playing the character as a comic stooge in this you know when bond thinks he has the right information M has that look of smug satisfaction that, oh yeah, my agent beat your agent, he knows his stuff. 
and then she just very calmly corrects him and uh, Walter Gattel has that lovely little Russian chuckle uh, and I think has that great line, I'm sure two such perceptive talents will get along famously. I think it was also nice to see M as uh, M's got over his grumpiness from the previous film, much more friendly towards Bond and everyone in general. Yeah, he seems to have a lot more time for Bond in this one, doesn't he? He seems to be a lot more um, faithful in his abilities as an agent than he was in the last one, where he seemed to just be very irritated at all the trouble Bond was causing. We get a very uh, informal naming of all of the characters, so we find out Miles as M, Alexis as uh, General Gogol. We get Major Boothroyd, his name dropped, Q. And uh, bizarrely, Bond calls the Minister of Defence Freddy when he's going through the details of the plan. Yeah, and it's so casual when he calls him Freddy. They're just walking away from the briefing on uh, the pontoon of the ship, and it's just that, well, what do you think of this, Freddy? Did we want to discuss a little bit about Strongberg as a villain in terms of his overall role? Because I think that he ramps it up a lot more from anything we've really seen previously in the past films. Yeah, kind of ridiculous world domination idea. You know, this this sense that he's such a, a megalomaniac that nothing will, nothing seems to be able to stop him. He, he's just so determined to be able to take over the world, and it seems that his plan is, you know, it's foolproof. There's no way that Bond and Annie can overcome it. Um, I'm not actually a huge fan of um, Carl Stromberg, I have to admit. I think, um, uh, I, I guess the thing to bear in mind with him is that Lewis Gilbert is back directing, and just as Diamonds Are Forever had very self-consciously tried to remake various elements of Goldfinger, this is very much trying to remake um, elements of Lewis Gilbert's previous film, You Only Live Twice. Uh, we've got the idea that there is a huge vehicle which is swallowing enemy capsules, in this case submarines rather than spacecraft. And Stromberg is very much part of that in that he's a return to the megalomaniacal Blofeld style of villain. He shares various characteristics with Blofeld. He has the voice of God intercom. He's feeding women to, you know, sea creatures. He is physically disfigured in this case with his webbed hands. And of course, he's stealing nuclear weapons. So he is, in a sense, a much more genocidal Blofeld. He says specifically, extortion is not my business. I'm about wiping out humanity and so there's a raising of the stakes on that level but I just wonder with the character he's not really given an awful lot to do and he doesn't have a huge amount of interplay with Bond beyond that one scene when Bond and Anya visit Atlantis um, I think the film is much more interested with his henchmen um, for obvious reasons because of course the lead henchman is so iconic and is such a fascinating creation um, but I don't know I'm not sure that I love Stromberg but that is purely because he is incredibly derivative of Blofeld, and perhaps also because he's not really given a huge amount to do. Yeah, I think I've mentioned previously that I haven't watched this film for, I haven't watched these Roger Moore Bonds for a while, and he, he doesn't stick out as a memorable villain. I would say there's nothing wrong with his performance, and it's kind of like a mesh of Dr. No with the classical music and uh, Donald Pleasance's uh, Blofeld from You Only Live Twice with the, the whole plan. I'll give Stromberg a bit of credit. He is creative in his methods of execution. Like he goes for the uh, shark kill of his assistant and then a call back to Goldfinger with Mr. Solo. You think that the doctor and the professor are going to escape and then he decides to explode the helicopter as they're leaving. So uh, yeah, I mean, Stromberg is okay. It's kind of a middling villain. 
What Stromberg never quite um, manages to clarify is how this underwater kingdom of his, once humanity has been wiped out, is actually going to work. I mean, is this just him and all the fish? Is he taking people with him, like Hugo Drax does in uh, the next film? He takes the perfect specimens to repopulate the world with him. What's, what's Stromberg's idea? Does he literally just want to be on his own underwater in Atlantis looking at all the fish? I mean, presumably, yes. Well, actually, no, maybe that's why he takes Anya with him. He sort of thinks maybe the two of them are going to repopulate life under the sea and then become king and queen of the Mer people. Maybe that's his plan. Yeah, his whole plan doesn't really make a lot of sense. Like, wouldn't the people still be decadent even if they're living underwater? But yeah, I'd agree with you, Adam. I think the, uh, the henchmen certainly overshadow Stromberg in this one. And maybe that's not such a bad thing because uh, Jaws is an incredible henchman. Jaws is brilliant, and the handling of him in this film is fantastic. He's set up as this very specific cross between Dracula and Frankenstein's monster with the teeth and then just the sheer physical size of Jaws. And, of course, the fact that he's mute, again, called back to Red Grant and deriving a lot of the menace and the fear that that character has around him from the fact that he says nothing at all. And, of course, the fact that he's called Jaws very obviously calls back to the Spielberg blockbuster, which has been released between this film and The Man with the Golden Guns. But he's handled brilliantly the character here, particularly in those scenes in Egypt. That scene at the Pyramid Light Show is, I think, fantastic. It's one of my favourite sequences in the whole franchise because the music and, and the fact that they're in these surroundings gives the whole scene this sense of mythic grandeur that Bond isn't just up against another henchman. He's up against an actual beast from hell almost. He's up against this insane monster who can bite through these metal chains. And the fact that they keep that sense of terror throughout all of the Jaws encounters in this, whilst also playing him for slapstick, means that, again, they have their cake and eat it. I agree, Adam. I think we should also pay a bit of tribute to Richard Keel as well for his performance in this, because I think he does so well with it, particularly because of the fact the dentures he was using, apparently they were so painful and so uncomfortable, he could only wear them for like half a minute in between the takes. And obviously, a lot of the time, you're having to pull these kind of comical expressions while he's in abject agony, almost. Just a little fun fact with the chains that he bites through as well at the pyramids, they're actually made from licorice, so you can probably just slightly see where they've been coloured with silver food colouring. In terms of villainy, you know, Jaws is, is right up there, you know, and there's a reason why we all remember him as one of the great Bond characters, because it's just such a great performance. Yeah, I really love the sense of terror that you get in The Murders. Uh, I mean, I guess it depends what mood you're in when you're watching the film. Uh, as to whether you laugh at those or whether that you take them seriously. But uh, I thought they were quite amazing, the, like for Kesh. I'm not sure whether we see uh, a person in a Bond film just seemingly give up. He knows that he's got no chance and he's just succumbed to his fate. And similarly with Calber as well in the telephone booth. That's a really dramatic scene, particularly with the music playing in the background as well, adds to that. Yeah, in all of those great jaw sequences, music and sound uh, combine perfectly with just the expressions on the actors' faces of abject horror that this is how they're going to meet their end. And of course, the camera work as well, those close-ups on Jaws' gleaming teeth. And again, when we get to his attack on Anya in the train, there's a great combination of the camera zooms in. There's a bit of a crash zoom into him stood in the wardrobe as soon as the doors are opened. And it's kind of a horror film jump scare in a way.
should we talk about the great lotus chase because it is a fantastic center point of the film one of the iconic car chasers it strikes me it's almost combining the best of goldfinger and thunderball in the sense that on land we very much return to goldfinger in terms of we have this gadget car which fires various different things and the stakes are raised with every different obstacle it has to overcome we have the bike we have the car we have the chopper which culminates in the big reveal that it's going underwater at which point it of course turns into thunderball indeed they return to the bahamas to shoot all of those underwater scenes but yeah what do you guys think about scene it's it's so good isn't it i think in terms of the presence of that car and the way that it it builds in that sequence. It is a brilliantly filmed, even from the very start, obviously we see Q bring the car off the boat. And this is quite indicative of the Roger Moore era. There's, whereas we've seen kind of explanations with Connery and Lazenby with their gadgets. With this, there's no mucking about. Roger Moore is straight in the car and obviously Q attempts to explain to him what all the gadgets do. But he's straight off. He's literally, you know, when am I ever let you down, Q? And it's just like frequently. And he just drives off and screeches. But no, I think this is one of the very best car chases of the entire franchise, particularly because of the way it's shot as well. Obviously, this is was a very new way of, of shooting the sequence. Obviously, going right back to Goldfinger, as we've mentioned, there was a lot of focus on the close-ups. In this one, it's slightly different because we're kind of on a side angle. There's not as much focus on Roger Moore and Barbara Back's uh, facial expressions as such. It's a lot more on you know the action between the helicopter, between the car, and between you know the chase where he's getting stuck behind the lorry, so there's there's very much it's all it's all paced very differently, you know it's much more frantic, it's much quicker. Yeah, I really love the music as well. The disco music from the pre-title seems to return, and when I was watching it, I didn't really think it was appropriate for the death-defying stunts that were happening or the chase sequences. But uh, in the following few days, that's all I've had in my head, so it must have made some impression. I love that disco music. You hated it in the opening sequence, Phil. It's all right. I'm happy that we've convinced you. Uh, I second everything you've said about the filming of that chase. And I'd also say that, again, humour is there. It's balanced. But it's not undermining all the great action choreography and all the great stunt work as it is with the presence of J.W. Pepper. Uh, in the pursuits in the previous two films. We wait until a breather in the action sequence for Roger Moore to get his witticisms out. And we wait for the major slapstick until right after the action's completely finished and uh, the underwater sequence has taken place. And then we have the comic sort of climax of him driving up through the beach full of tourists and we get that lovely returning character of uh, the drunken British guy with the bottle on the beach who thinks he's had rather too much of it based on what he's seeing. And of course, Roger Moore dropping a fish out of the car window. We're not doing this mid-chase as we would have done in the previous two films. We're doing it at an appropriate moment when we've time to breathe. Uh, shall we talk a little bit more about, um, of course, the great epic action sequences at the end of the film? Um, Ken Adam, we've already mentioned, returning as a production designer, and he has to build his own studio soundstage for this film, the 007 stage, which still looms large over the entirety of Pinewood Studios. In fact, I hear a rumour that the set was so big and so difficult to light that none other than Stanley Kubrick himself secretly visited the production to advise on how to light it. So that's the scale of what they were dealing with. Um, but it does create for a magnificently sized finale, doesn't it? Just those first scenes in it when all, you know, probably 200, 300 maybe sailors all cheering and going gung-ho suddenly emerge brandishing machine guns into it and everything starts blowing up. 
it feels so much bigger than everything we've seen before. Yeah, I was going to say, the, it reminded me uh, of You Only Live Twice, incredibly, on an even bigger scale. It was more entertaining, I felt, as a battle. It felt bigger, it felt grander. Uh, and it felt like Bond had to use some ingenuity as well. Of course, he has to take the detonator from the uh, the nuclear missile, then use it to get through the uh, impregnable head of command. So, uh, yeah, I think everything worked well, even the small moments of comedy. He's working alongside the American commander, sub-commander. And in a way, I feel sorry for Felix Leiter. Of course, we don't see him for a while and he's already been upstaged by a better American who is more useful to his mission. Yeah, I think I don't think we miss Felix Leiter in, in the last couple of films, but certainly with the action sequences of this, there are much bigger expression, obviously, from the rather subdued ending we get in The Man with the Golden Gun from every point, not just Atlantis, but also on the oil tanker and even into the submarine bays. You know, the fact that all of that setup is, is just so brilliantly done. There are a couple of amusing gaffes. I mean, you'll notice when Strongberg escapes from the, the oil tanker to go to Atlantis, it briefly cuts to a model of Captain Scarlet. If, you, if you're eagle-eyed enough, it is a bit of a silly bit where it flies out of the uh, oil tanker. Even just that great sort of few kind of facial expressions, obviously Sean Rimmer, where he, uh, he says, well, what are we going to do next? And Bond goes, let's go to the armory. He says, we'll find a nuclear weapon. He just sort of leaps out of his skin right up to the point where obviously he's having to remove the nuclear detonator from it. And the guy goes, oh, well, how many times have you done this before? He says, oh, well, this is the first time for everything. And you just see the moment of panic on the uh, the sailor's face stood next to him going, okay, then. And it's, it's just those sort of great little kind of details that are put into it as well. Yeah, again, it's that combination. It's action, it's humour, it's spectacle. And just like those bits of humour that you mentioned, Phil, which are peppered throughout it, uh, what really makes this work as a great action sequence is the fact that not all of it is huge, gigantic explosions and men getting mown down by the score. It's also the fact that we cut away to two really low-key but electrifyingly tense suspense sequences, of course, when he's removing the bomb from uh, the core of the nuclear missile to get through those actually impregnable shutters this time. It's not like you only live twice. Uh, but also afterwards, when the battle is over and they have to reprogram the submarines, and suddenly we're just looking at the two little specks on the big uh, interactive board, and we're just waiting to see if this plan has worked. It's a great little suspense sequence, which is only using... Uh, the very small sound of the beeping of the control panels and the movement of those rockets across the board. A uh, good thing that they left James Bond the instruction manual, really, just uh, lying around on the uh, the programming desk, and that also it didn't seem to take much reading to uh, to reprogram uh, the board and the submarines. I just love the idea that there's probably just a little sequence in, in the very start of it saying, thank you for buying your, you know, Amstrad 9000 tracking system. Obviously, in the you know two and a half minute that Bond has, he automatically knows which page to turn to to be able to reprogram everything. I don't think they've got any problem, Phil. If it's an Amstrad, <laughs> they wouldn't work anyway. He doesn't need to disarm it or send it in a different direction. Yeah, Amstrad computers famously reliable, aren't they? Um, it's also followed up, of course, by it's it's a sort of trend in Roger Moore's Bond films. I like to call them Moore's climactic anticlimaxes in that we have the sort of big colossal action sequence, which is always followed up by a slightly more anticlimactic, uh, smaller scale action sequence, and then Roger Moore getting together with the bomb woman. But James, what would our superiors say? They're never gonna know. 
There's the danger of the bends. Well, we'll soon find out. What do you think you're doing? Keeping the British hand up, sir. Okay, so an iconic car used in this film, as we've mentioned. But Phil, can you give us more details? It's uh, the cars and gadgets. You're not thinking. Uh... I sure am, boy. Ever heard of Evil Knievel? Neither have I, actually. Yes, thank you very much, Martin. Yes, of course, this film features the 1977 Lotus Esprit S1. There's no real any other place that we could start with other than the Esprit. This probably goes on to be the second most well-known and most recognised Bond car of the entire series after the Aston Martin DB5. Also, there was a lot of competition at this time for car makers to be part of the Bond series. Because the franchise was so lucrative by this point, a lot of manufacturers were being linked with the series. But Lotus were keen to get the Esprit kind of front and centre. Now, unlike a lot of manufacturers, they didn't want to beg for the position. They, they didn't really have the financial clout of, of other car makers. So PR director Don McLaughlin from Lotus drove an unreleased white Esprit to Pinewood Studios in 1976 and made sure he removed any mention of Lotus or Esprit from the cast and just parked it right in front of the offices at Pinewood Studios. A huge crowd developed around the car, obviously really in intriguing to what it was. Corby Broccoli was so impressed with, obviously, with the setup that he actually uh, personally rang Lotus in, and obviously asked them to be part of the, um, the production. So that was kind of how Lotus became affiliated with the Bond franchise. Now, because obviously the Esprit couldn't have, they couldn't have built a car that could have gone underwater and still worked as it came out at the other side, they actually had to build a scale model of the Esprit that was basically controlled by four operators. So we see the car launch into the water and then it very specifically cuts to a completely different car. Obviously, you see the underside of the car is completely smooth as a hull, so it will work underwater. We see the wheels have slightly changed so they can then move inwards. The approach to give it rudders was actually a very last minute addition. So they basically had to go to a local hardware shop and buy four mops which they then basically covered over with white covers. And they were actually operated by four of the stuntmen who were with breathing gear inside the, uh, the model of the Lotus and were moving it around. But just to quickly go through um, some of the gadgets of note throughout the film, Anya has the music box, which also becomes a Morse code or communications device. We've also got the ski pole gun at the very start, which uses the explosive bullets to kill um, Anya's lover. There's the submarine tracker midway through, which we see used by the, um, the military intelligence officers. And of course, Bond's microfilm reader, which he uses to identify the, the blueprints and missing key information. And also one thing that people often forget is the wet bike at the very end. Obviously, Bond uses that to rescue Anya towards the end of the film. And that was actually supplied by the Spirit Marine Corporation. So that was a real vehicle that could be used for sort of leisure activities up until 1992 when it when the company stopped making it 
Um, so it's quite an interesting little device. Obviously, it's quite a use again for kind of comic effects because he passes the uh, the handlebars to to the sub commander, and obviously he then has to build the bike, which we which we assume is probably most of what is the hour that he asked for is just so that it can build the bike and then also sail to Atlantis. But that's a very very quick run through kind of the um, the kind of gadgets and the cars that are used in the film. But obviously, most of us remember it for the iconic Lotus Esprit. Okay, great stuff. Thanks, Phil. Uh, so, of course, the Lotus is that—that's the one that Elon Musk bought, isn't it? Yeah, it's quite interesting as well, being that um, from a petrolhead's point of view, Lotus has always been um, rather affectionately nicknamed as "lots of trouble, usually serious." So, the fact that there's even the in joke in the film, where also we see the leaks coming in as as they've been shot, probably is a little mention to the the build quality of Lotus over, over those years, because they're not really renowned for their reliability. Okay, and uh, over the hill to our next segment, which is by the book 007. Uh, what are the similarities and differences between the film and the book, Adam? Why don't you acquaint yourself the manual? You should be able to shoot through that in a couple of hours. Just took a few seconds, Q. Thank you very much, Martin. So it's going to be very quick to talk about the similarities between The Spy Who Loved Me, the novel and the film, because it's literally the title. That's pretty much the only thing that survived. Uh, there are a couple of elements which have been inspired by something from the novel, but I'll come back to those. Uh, this is a very strange installment in the James Bond novel series. This almost isn't a James Bond novel. It's more of an experimental novella from Ian Fleming specifically because it's not even written from James Bond's point of view. It's actually completely different in terms of its style. It's a first-person narrative delivered by Vivian Michelle, who is um, our lead female character in this one. And so Bond himself doesn't actually appear in the novel until the final third. Um, essentially what we get is the first third of the novel is the whole romantic backstory of this character, Vivienne Michelle, involving um, the, the loss of her virginity to a slightly dubious character who later uh, abandons her, uh, and then an abortion that she's forced to have after a, a brief affair with a former employer. And it's a much more sexually explicit um, passage of writing, this whole section, than we've seen in any previous Fleming novel, uh, and so it's quite interesting. The second third of the book actually uh, picks up in the present day when Vivienne is working in uh, a motel in the Adirondack Mountains while crossing North America, at which point she becomes involved in a kind of gangland insurance scam in which two thugs named Slugsy and Horror have been sent to burn down the hotel uh, and have her killed by the fire and take the blame so that they can, the hotel's owners can scam the insurance companies. In the process of which, the villains decide that they're going to have, let's say, a little fun with Vivienne, at which point James Bond randomly enters. And this novel splits the Blofeld trilogy in the chronology of the books. This comes after Thunderball and before On A Majesty's Secret Service. And so James Bond is traveling through America on Operation Bedlam. He's actually on the hunt for Blofeld but is interrupted um, by having to help Vivienne at this stay at a hotel. He um, stops uh, the two thugs from raping her and uh, indeed kills them in a gunfight followed by a car chase, after which he has a very brief one-night romantic encounter with Vivienne, after which he abandons her. So that's kind of the novel, and where the film does take uh, its inspiration from the book is in these two henchmen characters. The character called Slugsy uh, is named as having a bold head, and so seems to have been the inspiration for Sandor. And indeed, horror is described as having steel-capped teeth, not steel teeth, but steel-capped teeth. 
And so the character of Jaws is also quite clearly taken uh, from that character. But a very strange and unsuccessful novel, actually. Fleming, in selling the rights to the series, specifically stated that nothing of the novel's plot was to be filmed at all. Okay, thank you very much, Adam, for that, uh, that summary there of the novel. So we'll move on now to the segment of That's Not Okay Anymore. So in previous episodes, there's been some quite serious cases of racism and sexism, this time toned down quite considerably, not any major infractions of political correctness. Maybe most of them happen, they seem to happen in the Egyptian desert scenes. So of course we get the line of the Egyptian builders, which the uh, the cast and crew were worried about. So actually more just mimes the words than they add them in later uh, because the Egyptian tourism board were watching all of the scenes that were filmed in Egypt to make sure that they made the, the country look good. We also get Enya's character in Jaws's telephone van, and we get lots of quip after quip from Bond um, about women drivers, etc. So that one, I feel like they were kind of unnecessary, those ones. Maybe a few, but it's the whole scene is basically Roger Moore making fun of the character. And we don't really need, because we've got the comedy of Jaws dropping the, uh, the stone on his foot at the end. Uh, so I feel like we don't really need those ones. What do you, what do you reckon? Apparently that was all unscripted because Barbara Back couldn't actually drive a manual car. So where she is struggling with the gearbox, that is genuinely because she, she wasn't sure how to, to obviously change gear. So obviously Roger Moore, it was probably meant as a light-hearted, sort of not a, as a malicious uh, quip, but obviously that was all unscripted apparently. So, so they probably just left it in. But you're absolutely right about the, um, the Egyptian tourist board, Martin. They were in place to make sure that nothing negative was was mentioned during the filming in those parts but apparently when it was first shown to egyptian audiences they actually found it quite funny so they weren't they weren't offended by it at all so it was it was actually meant with with good humor and it was um taken in that manner as well great to hear that all that sexism just came directly from roger moore as opposed to it was unfortunately written for him by the writer of confessions of a window cleaner uh, the one thing that those comments do actually do uh, is that they give Anya ultimately an opportunity to get the last lap on Bond, which of course re-establishes her as actually being the stronger, perhaps more modern, perhaps more capable secret agent. Uh, so they're not shying away actually from Bond having to be portrayed as a little bit of a dinosaur in contrast to this younger and probably better secret agent. Uh, yeah, and then the final thing I wanted to mention was the, maybe not things that are politically incorrect, uh, but things that haven't aged so well in the intervening years. Uh, we mentioned the music from Dr. Shivago used at the beginning, but we also get that odd scene where they're walking through the desert to Lawrence of Arabia. <laughs> what did we think to that? I'm not sure whether, again, I'm not sure whether that joke was entirely necessary or fit with the tone of what was happening. I actually like the inclusion of both Lawrence of Arabia and Dr. Zhivago themes. I think they missed the trick not having the Lawrence of Arabia theme earlier when uh, James Bond, Roger Moore, is in full Arabian gear on a camel uh, going to his friend's tent in the desert. That would obviously have been the much better, funnier place to put it. Uh, but it's also, I guess, a slight nod to the fact that with this film's increased spectacle, David Lean's films are still the gold standard for them. Okay, very good. And moving on now to Q-Branch. So it's the questions from you guys in our audience, in our listenership. So uh, what questions do we have this week, Phil? 
Yeah, so thanks, Bill. So there's been a couple um, on our social media channels. One that came in through Twitter. Do we think there's kind of a standout female actor that we'd like to see portray um, a Bond woman? For me personally, I actually think that um, Daisy Ridley, who made a name in the Star Wars films recently, may be quite a good option um, in the future. I'm not sure, guys. Do you think that's somebody that they should go with moving forward? I was a big fan of the use of Monica Bellucci in uh, Spectre. I think she was sadly underused in that film, but as a sort of very respected, older, grand dame of European art cinema, I think you take that even further and you get Tilda Swinton in as a leading Bond woman, someone who's much older than Bond, but someone who's still incredibly striking, but someone who has a sort of natural intellectual rigour and haughty sense of artistry. So I think she might actually be quite an interesting choice. There's no way she'd ever do it, but it'd be fascinating to see. Perhaps a a recast for Jane Seymour in her old age. She could play that uh, older lady. That's a good idea, because Pierce Brosnan has also, on many occasions, talked about he'd love to return to the Bond franchise as a villain. Maybe it could be the ultimate um, in-jokey Bond film, with Jane Seymour returning as the leading lady, and Pierce Brosnan as a supervillain. So when you near me, darling, can't you hear me? Yes, Maybe that's his supervillain power. He just wants ABBA songs on every radio station from now to the end of time on a loop. Great torture sequence. You don't need, you don't need the villain hitting his testicles. It's just Brosnan singing ABBA song. Mr. Bond, normally there's a big machine that's going to cause you great pain. Instead, I'm just going to sing ABBA at you. When you're gone. Um, just to go back to the question as well, so a really great one that came in on Twitter as well was um, if we'd had the opportunity, obviously going back to Connery's era, um, what kind of Bond actor would we have liked to have played the character in the early films, kind of predating the 1960s? Is there anybody else that we would have liked to have played in the role? I think my knowledge of uh, actors in the early 60s is not great, so I'm going to say I'd like to have Fleming's choice of Roger Moore. I think Roger Moore did play a spoof version of James Bond in a TV show before he took the role of James Bond proper. But uh, it certainly would have been a a different, in a parallel universe, maybe the Bond franchise may have gone in a different direction if uh, Moore had had it first. What do you reckon, Adam? It certainly would have, or would have found its uh, its Roger Moore direction much earlier. Uh, Cary Grant um, is the actor who um, who was also, you know, very much wanted by the producers uh, back then, and I think he would have been a fantastic Bond if only for one film. Uh, on the radio, Bob Holness, the uh, the future host of Blockbusters, did play James Bond. Perhaps he should have been given a go uh, on the big screen. I'll have a pee, please, Doctor No. Okay, thanks, Adam. And just a quick final question from Facebook from Patricia has asked, they were wondering why the films are not made in the same order as the books were written. So was that just down to sort of director preference? Well, it's a combination of things. On a very basic level, uh, it's not possible for them to start where the books do because the first novel is Casino Royale and uh, the rights for that novel were sold separately to the rights to adapt the rest of the series. So another studio uh, and another producer who isn't uh, Albert R. Broccoli and Harry Saltzman owns the, owned at the time the rights to Casino Royale, so it was impossible for them to begin with that one. Uh, and beyond it, we have to remember Doctor No wasn't made on a particularly huge budget. I think it was $6 million, which for you know a big action blockbuster wasn't very much at the time. Uh, and so from that point on, it very much became a case of you have to pick a novel which it is possible to adapt with that money. And, and it was decided that Doctor No 
would be uh, the best candidate with From Russia With Love following. Uh, they wanted, of course, to start with Thunderball, which was written as a screenplay. Uh, we talked before, though, that was also mired up in legal issues. And it's a film that is so much bigger than Doctor No, you sort of couldn't have made it on the same budget. Uh, and of course, on top of that is the fact that we start off following the novels relatively faithfully, but there's only really, I would say, Doctor No from Russia With Love on Her Majesty's Secret Service, and I guess ultimately Goldfinger to a lesser extent, that really faithfully follow the novels. And so because they're reinventing the books in the image that they want the films to be cast in, there's no great desire or will on the producer's part to follow the strict chronology. Okay, very nice. That was Q Branch. So do remember to get your questions in. You can send us a comment on any of our social media or, of course, our email address, rogermorescubbyhole at gmail.com. So over to our final segment, which is the quiz. No, 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 stop getting Bond wrong! Stop getting Bond wrong! It's Adam this week. So uh, car engines again, Adam? Um... No, surprisingly not car engines again. Uh, I thought I'd do something a little bit different and I'd treat you both to a buzzer quiz. It's the first to five and this quiz is called The Pies Who Loved Me. So specifically, I've taken the titles of uh, the, some of the previous Bond films that we've been watching and I've turned them into anagrams. So you're going to be on the buzzer. Oh dear, I think you both groaned a bit more than uh, you did last week with the car engines with that. <laughs> I'm dreadful at anagrams. Yeah, me too. This is going to take a while. Yeah, but there are only nine possible things they can be. So, so these are the titles of the Bond films we've watched so far. So it at least narrows the field for you. Uh, so you're going to compete on the buzzer to answer each one. Uh, first to five wins. Uh, we need to give you each a couple of buzzers. So I think, Martin, uh, as you love it so much, your buzzer can be the sound of Mr. Wint being thrown off the side of the boat knob first in uh, Diamonds Are Forever's finale. Perfect. And Phil, I think the one we'll give you is, because uh, we haven't talked about him much with The Spy Who Loved Me, the other henchman, Sandor, will have the sound of him saying, Pyramids! Just as uh, Roger Moore's about to throw him off a roof. Pyramids! Ah! So we're going to start with a very easy one. Ron D. Ooh. That's Martin. Dr. No. Is correct, Dr. No. Martin draws first blood. Your second one. Gingerfold. Pyramids! Ah! That's Phil. Goldfinger. It is Goldfinger, one all, well done. Your next one. Lean Devil Diet. Ooh. Martin. Live and Let Die. Is correct, Martin by a nose. Lean Devil Diet is Live and Let Die. Next one. With Clue, Looney Yeti. With Clue, Looney Yeti. Martin. You only live twice. Is correct. Very well done. Storming into an early lead, but Phil, plenty of time to come back. Your next one. St. John's Creamy Cheese's River. St. John's Creamy Cheese's River. Pyramids! Ah! Phil. On a Majesty's Secret Service? He's correct. Phil claims one back. It's 3-2 all to play for. Your next one is... Freddy's Rover Moana. Ah! 
Bill. From Russia with love. Incorrect. I can oh. offer it over. The Martin. diamonds are forever. It is diamonds are forever. Yes. Yeah, so Martin, one off the win here. Your next one is Morris wash fruit vole. That's Martin. The man with the golden gun. Incorrect. I can pass it to Phil. Oh, now that was what I was going to actually guess. Uh... Morris Wash Fruit Vole. Morris spelt M-O-R-R-I-S. Morris Wash Fruit Vole. Isn't that from Russia with Love? It is from Russia with Love. So, 4-3. Only two to go. Who's going to take it? Your next one is... Them Nugget Twin Head Hole. That's got to... Um... Pyramids! Ah! Phil? That's got to be the man with the golden gun, surely. It's for all. That was the man with the golden gun. Them nuggets, twin head hole. So, last one. He blunt lard. He blunt lard. Ooh. Martin? I think there's only one left, isn't there? We Thunderball? Yep. Yep, you've worked it out. He blunt lard was Thunderball. So Martin takes it by a whisper, five to four. Very closely fought quiz. And of course, Martin, that means you choose our outro song. Was that, did you say by a whisker or by a whisper? By a whisper. <laughs> Shall I open it? Look, at, is he still in that, that container? Is he still there? I think he's still there. Full yeah. whisper. Yeah, I'll be a skeleton by now. Well, I didn't quite have a full song this week that I'd like to play out because I'm not sure whether it is a full song, but I'd like the theme tune, Nobody Does It Better, the one that plays at the end of the film, the ridiculously jaunty and uh, I'm not quite sure how to describe it. What, what style is it? It's, it's a sea tonk. shanty. It's a sea shanty. So thanks everyone. That was uh, episode number 10, The Spy Who Loved Me, the best film ever made. It'll be on to episode number 11 next, where we'll take a look not at um, For Your Eyes Only, as it says at the end of the credits. Moonraker is, of course, the next film. So in the meantime, do get your questions into QBranch for our next episode. Uh, give us a like and follow on social media. So it's a goodbye from me, Martin. It's goodbye from me, Adam. And it's goodbye from me, Phil. Nobody does. Makes me feel sad for the rest Nobody does it half as good as you Baby, you're the best Nobody does it better, it better. <laughs> Makes me feel sad for the rest